following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw or our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. We have just about, we come today to the end of the first section in Genesis. So we've just about finished this first section, the first 11 chapters in Genesis are all one unit. They're all one section. And they tell the story of God creating the heavens and the earth, uh, and then humanity rebelling against God, and how that one act of rebellion has rippled out and out and out and out to affect the entirety of creation, the entirety of humanity, the entirety of the human person, uh, and this devastation that sin has caused in the world. So it's a bit of a sorry story that we've been looking at the last several weeks, but that's the story. It's an important story nonetheless. And we're finishing that part of the story today. So it all comes to a crescendo with this passage, which is in Genesis 11. That's where we're going to be this morning. So if you have a Bible, uh, this is a good time to pull it out. If you've got a Bible app on your device, this is a good time to boot that up. If you don't have a Bible, that's absolutely fine. Uh, and the words will be on the screen. You'll be able to follow along there. So Kent Davies is going to come and read this passage for us. Come on up, Kent. Thank you. A reading from Genesis chapter 11, verse 1 to 9. You're good. Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As the men moved eastward, they found a plain in Sinar and settled there. They said to each other, Come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so we may make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower the men were building. The Lord said, If as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there all over the earth, and they stopped building the city. That is why it, is, it was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. Good job, Kent. Well done. Thank you. All right, now just to set this up, we've got a short video clip. This is uh, just to kind of get us thinking about the story in a bit of a modern-day context. It's from the movie Skyscraper, and this is a little look at what might be a modern-day Tower of Babel. So let's watch the screen. Right, so that's not a real building, just in case you're wondering. Like, thinking, where is that building? That's not real. Uh, but it is an interesting uh, little look at the, the story, and you know, if there was a Tower of Babel that was built today, would it look like that? I don't know. Maybe it would, maybe it wouldn't. It's interesting in that video clip, if you've read that story in the Bible, uh, just some of the allusions to that biblical story. Uh, even in the beginning, they reference the Tower of Babel, and then you notice all the different languages and cultures, this, this new story that's being told by all these different media outlets from around the world, uh, which kind of reflects all the cultures and the languages in, this, in the biblical story itself. So there's these interesting echoes of the story there. So that's just to get us thinking around um, kind of a modern-day context, uh, because this is a very ancient story, but it raises some interesting questions for us, this story. Uh, questions like, why did God have such a problem with this tower? What was it about this building?
Oh, lost the mic again. There we are. Was it uh, just the fact that it was a really tall... But Does God have a problem with tall buildings? Does God just have a general problem with apartment blocks and the sky tower and these, these kinds of buildings? Was, is he somehow opposed to this? Or was there something specific about that particular structure that God had an issue with? And why does he respond in this particular way of coming down and confusing language, giving people all these different languages to speak? Is God somehow opposed to multiculturalism? Is this, is this some kind of punishment for sin? What do, what do we make of this? What does it say about who God is? And how do we get from this ancient story to our lives in the 21st century today? What possible bearing does it have on our lives? So I want to unpack a little bit of this with you. I want to walk through the story, uh, look a little bit more closely at it. I want to try and place this story in the context of the whole biblical narrative, which is what we often try and do here at Shaw. And then from there, start drawing some parallels and some connections to our lives today in the 21st century, okay? So let's go back to the beginning of the story. Have a look at the first verse, chapter 11, verse 1. Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. Straight away there, we had a bit of a problem because it sounds like everybody was speaking the same language at this point. And yet, if you glance back at chapter 10, just have a quick little scroll through that chapter, you will see several references to the fact people were already speaking different languages. So you already have all these different people groups and clans that have migrated out to different parts of the world, and the text says each according to their own language. So you've already got these local languages there, so how is it then that you get to chapter 11 and everybody's speaking one language? I think the the difference is in the words that are used. There's two different Hebrew words, both translated as language in English. In chapter 10, the Hebrew word translated language, it means tongue. It literally means tongue. So these different tongues or these different local languages were being spoken around the known world. But in chapter 11 in the Tower of Babel story, the word language, it means literally, it means lip. So the whole world had one lip, literally one lip. And I think the picture that emerges is a picture where you have all of these local languages already developed. You have regional languages, you have national languages, so to speak. There weren't nations in the same way there are today. But these various dialects and languages. But there was, over the top of all that, there was a common language. There was also a lingua franca, we would call it today, as Sam referred to, a a language that people would use to unify themselves so they could work together, so they could communicate together, so they could have society together. It's a bit like today, where you have all these different local, regional, national languages, but English, in a lot of ways, functions as a lingua franca, as an international language that allows broader communication and cooperation between peoples. So it's not unlike the situation that's happening at the beginning of this Tower of Babel story. Lots of local languages, one lingua franca over the top of all that. So that's the language situation as the story starts. And then we read in verse 2, as people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. Now this this Shinar or Shinar, uh, that's located in ancient Babylon, which is in modern day Iraq. So if you're wondering where all this takes place, this is a real place. It's not a a made up place. Uh, This is Iraq. This is where the Tower of Babel first existed. And so this is where the story is located in the Middle East, in Iraq. And in verse 3, they say to each other, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. That might seem like an insignificant detail, but it's actually quite interesting because it corresponds to what we know from history, that these ancient Babylonians were the first people to start using brick for construction 
instead of stone. And they switched over their construction material. They used these fired bricks, these baked bricks, and they would use tar as mortar, and they started using these, this construction material rather than the old stone ways. But what's interesting is they only did this for really important buildings. And archaeologists have found this, that, that it was more expensive. It was a more complicated process. So they would still build a lot of stuff with stone, but when it came to the really important buildings, they would use the fired brick. And so that tells you something already about this tower these people are going to build. It tells you something, doesn't it? It tells you it was one of the most prominent buildings in the city, one of the most preeminent buildings, one of the most important, if not the most important building for the life of that city and the functioning of that city. This is an incredibly important public structure. So we know a little about the construction material they used. And then in verse 4, they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. Now, the question is, what kind of tower is this? What are they actually making here? And this is where we get a bit of help from archaeology because archaeologists have discovered the ruins of a lot of these kinds of towers. There wasn't just one. Various ancient cities had these, these huge, big towers. And you can visit some of the remains and ruins of these towers today in places like Iraq and other surrounding nations in the, in the Mediterranean, in the Middle East. There's a lot of them. And archaeologists have figured out a lot about the function and the purpose of these towers and what they meant to the people who designed them. The name they give to these towers is a ziggurat. It's a great word, ziggurat. Throw it around, feel free to use it. A ziggurat. And a ziggurat was like a big pyramid-shaped tower. So we often think Tower of Babel, like just this big sky tower-shaped thing that just went straight up. Actually, it was more kind of pyramid-shaped, not like the pyramids of Egypt, but pyramid-shaped, kind of a terraced sort of structure. It was made of brick. So there you go, again, corresponding to what we know and what it says in the Bible. Uh, it was an incredibly tall structure, certainly taller than anything else in the city. And the significant thing about the ziggurat is that it had a staircase. You can see that in the picture. All the way to the top. And that was important because these ziggurats, they had a very religious function. They're all tied up in the religions, these ancient religions that were practiced by various peoples. And the ziggurat was believed to be a staircase for the gods. And when I say gods, I don't mean the God of the Bible. But what we're talking about are all of these other pagan gods, these made-up, make-believe, human-constructed gods that people worshipped at the time, which is a bit of an indictment when you think about it, that we've only got this far in the biblical story, and already people have constructed other religions. There's other gods being worshipped. There's other ways of, of worshipping and other sacrifices being made to other deities already so early in the biblical story. And so these ziggurats were constructed by worshippers of other religions, other gods, and they believed that by making the staircase that connected to the heavens, they would provide this pathway, this staircase, and it would enable the god, whoever that god was, some Babylonian deity, to come down from their home in the heavens, to come down to earth, to then dwell in the temple, because the ziggurat wasn't actually the temple, it was just the staircase. They would come down and they would dwell in the temple and there they would be able to bless their people and they would receive worship from people and so on. That, I think, is why 
this passage talks about. These people want to make a, a tower that reaches to the heavens. That's not referring specifically to the height of the tower. That's referring to its function. That it was believed to be a tower that connected earth to heaven. So that the gods, whoever they were, could come down from heaven to earth to be among their people on earth. That's what the ziggurat was doing. So you can see this isn't a very different category to just any other skyscraper. This is not just a tall building. It's just not that God had a problem with it because it was tall. It's because it had this specifically religious purpose that it promoted the worship of gods other than the one true God. And also because of the motivation that these people had in building this tower. If you look at this verse, again, verse 4, people say, let's build a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. It's a bit of a giveaway, isn't it, as to what their motives really were. They're building this great tower. It's a religious tower. It's supposed to be about these gods and the worship of these gods. But underneath it all, what they're really driven by, what they're really interested in, is just making a name for themselves. That is, they just want to be seen to be great. They want to be esteemed. They want recognition. They want accolades. They want a great reputation. They want to be seen to be the visionaries of the city, the leaders, the great engineers, the great religious leaders, whatever it was. They want to be seen to have this elevated status above everyone else, the status symbol of having built this incredible tower so that people would know who they were, people would know their name, people would think they were something awesome. That's fundamentally what they want. It's, it's basically human pride that's going on here. They just wanted everyone else to recognize who they were. That's what is underneath the motives of these people in building this tower. Now, if you just pause there in the story, before we even go on, you can already, can't you, start to see some of the connections to our lives today. I mean, even though this is an ancient story, it comes from an ancient world, this is a different time, this is a different place. But that fundamental desire to make a name for ourselves, that is something that's embedded deep in the human heart. And that's been carried forward by every subsequent generation. And we live in that same kind of world today where everyone's trying to make a name for themselves, just like these people were doing. We might do it differently today. We might not build these ziggurats today, but we just do other things, don't we? We're driven by that same fundamental desire to make a name for ourselves. A couple of years ago, I went to um, the prize giving for our, young, our oldest boy, Josh, just at our, our primary school, local primary school up the road, and they have this prize giving at the end of the year, and each group of kids, like the house groups, they each stand up and sing a song as part of the evening. And so Josh's group got up and they, and they sung the song. And the name of the song is Hall of Fame. It's actually quite a contemporary song, uh, just a few years old. Hall of Fame by a band called The Script. And let me just read you the chorus of the song. Standing in the Hall of Fame, and the world's going to know your name, because you burn with the brightest flame, and the world's going to know your name. And you'll be on the walls of the Hall of Fame. It's indicative, I think, of the kind of culture that we are living in and that children, young people are being immersed in, in this emerging culture where everyone is trying to make a name for themselves. And what really matters in this culture that we're living in is that you are seen to be awesome, is that everyone else recognizes how awesome you are. It's, it's not about you being connected into community. 
It's not about you serving others or acting on behalf of the greater good or on behalf of society. It's about everyone just seeing how awesome you are. So you are kind of elevated. The individual is elevated above the crowd. Your voice is heard above all other voices. And people see your brilliance and your personal greatness and your personal uh, awesomeness, whatever it is, and people are drawn to you. That's the pull of the culture that we are living in. And, that, and that's why there's such an obsession with celebrity culture. You think about like, who are the people that we obsess over? Who are the people that we look up to? Who are the people that we seek wisdom from? They tend to be celebrities because celebrities have reached the holy grail, which is fame. They've made a name for themselves. They've done exactly what Genesis 11 talks about. It doesn't really matter to us how they've done it. It doesn't really matter exactly what path they've taken to make a name. What matters is that they've got the most Twitter followers now. What matters is they've got the most Facebook friends now. What matters is they have achieved fame and they are recognized now. And we love them for that. And we obsess over them and we want to be exactly like them. It's this Tower of Babel kind of world. The same kind of currents are going on today as they were back then. They just look different. There was a survey of uh, young people that was done back in the 70s, uh, asking them about their life goals. And on that list of 16 things, fame came in second to last. 15th out of 16th, fame. A similar survey was done in 2007, and 51% of young people listed fame as one of their top life goals. So you see the shift, even in a generation. What our young people are wanting now is more than anything, more than almost anything to be famous, to be seen, to be recognized. It connects with something deep within us. And it's not just young people, I think. It's any of us at any stage of life because there's a basic desire here to want to live in a self-centered kind of way, a self-driven, self-governing, self-gratifying, self-glorifying, self-preoccupied, self-obsessed kind of way. That's what it's getting at. Even if you don't have a desire to be noticed by crowds of people, we still have this base desire that we want to be in the center of our own universe. We want to be on the throne. And it doesn't mean that we reject God necessarily. I think there's plenty of people live this way and they still bring God into the equation somehow. It just means that ultimately God exists to serve my needs and help me achieve my life goals. He's like the genie in the bottle, you know? Yeah, we might, might, might pray to God, we might worship God, might do these religious things, this kind of a veneer of spirituality. But really, when it comes down to it, God is just there to help me advance my own agenda in life. That's still fundamentally trying to make a name for ourselves rather than making God's name great. So I would suggest we are still very much living in a Tower of Babel kind of world. The specifics are different, but the underlying motives and desires and ambitions are just the same as they were all the way back in this biblical story. So you ask, how does God see all this? What does God look down on this and think? As he looks down on our world, as he looks down on the biblical world, you get a clue, you get a pretty big clue in Genesis 11 because God responds to this situation. In verse 5 it says, But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. There's a, there's a note of irony there, I think, because you have this idea of God coming down 
to have a look at this tower. And of course, when people built these towers, when they built these ziggurats, that's exactly what they hoped would happen, that the gods would come down and they would come down to, to bless them and they would come down to give all these, these good gifts. But God is coming down not to bless people. He's coming down to judge. He's coming down because he is displeased with what's going on. And God says in verse 7, Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. So what God does is to bring confusion among the language of the people. And this is where you've got to think back to what was happening at the beginning of the chapter with the various languages. Sometimes we think that what God did was to give everyone different languages so they couldn't understand each other. But if you've got a world where there were already all these different languages that were being spoken, all God had to do is to remove the lingua franca. All God had to do was remove the common language. And you're left with just these regional languages, local dialects, local tongues, and nobody can understand each other. It would be similar today to if God mysteriously, supernaturally just removed English. Just imagine that this morning. God just removes English, can't speak English, can't write it, can't understand it. Now, how would we go? We'd probably be fine because most of you speak Afrikaans. <laughs> but some of us might struggle a little bit with that. We're left with all these, low, you know, some of you communicate with others. There might be little, little groups and clusters that can kind of connect with each other, but we would, we would struggle, wouldn't we, as a whole group to really have, you know, connect because we rely on the English language that's, that way. That's just how things have, have developed. You think of what would happen internationally if English was, was removed. You're left with all these, these good languages there, but the level of cross-communication is really, really limited. I think that's probably how the situation unfolded in this chapter. God removes the lingua franca. And you're just left with local languages. And so what would tend to happen in that situation is people divide into their language groupings. And that's exactly what you see in this chapter. People scatter. And they just go into their clusters and their groups. And they, it's like urbanization goes backwards. They scatter. And they would just set up their own little cities, their own little developments in areas where they can understand each other. But this joint project of working on the tower, that can't happen. They can't understand, therefore they can't work together, and the whole thing just breaks down. So you get to the end of the story, it's a pretty sad kind of scene. And it's, that's where the author wants to leave us at this point. There's not really any note of hope right here in the story. You're just left with a situation where people's relationship with God is fractured and messed up because they're chasing after all these other gods and now building shrines and towers to other gods. And people's relationship with one another is fractured can't even understand each other anymore. They're scattered in their language groupings and people groupings all over the world. It's a pretty low point in the biblical story. But this is where we need to take this story and place it in the context of the whole biblical story, as we try to do. And even though it's hard to see any real bright side in this particular story in Genesis 11, when you come all the way to the other end of the Bible, or the other side of the Bible, if you like, in the New Testament, there is another story that connects back very strongly to the Tower of Babel story and brings some resolution to what is a pretty unresolved situation. It's all the way over in Acts chapter 2. You can turn there if you want or just listen to this story. I want to just draw some parallels because I think this helps us see the unfolding of all this in the biblical story. Acts chapter 2 is from a very different part of the Bible, very different situation. This is after the life of Jesus and the death of Jesus, the resurrection and even the ascension of Jesus. Jesus has returned to heaven now and he's left his followers in Jerusalem and he's told them to wait. And so they're waiting. And one day, 
As all these believers, these followers of Jesus are huddled there together in this room and they're waiting and they don't know what's coming next, then the room is filled with this great rushing wind and it represents the presence of God. This is God's presence, the presence of the Holy Spirit filling the room. And so again, there's the sense of God has come down. Just like in the Tower of Babel story, God has come down among people. But this time, He hasn't come down to judge. This time, He has come down to bless. And God comes down, and and as this happens, you have these tongues of fire that rest on every person in the room. Incredible miracle. the, The presence of the Holy Spirit becomes tongues of fire, rest on every person, and they give every person in that room the ability to speak in another language. And these were actual spoken languages. So the people were Jews and they spoke Hebrew, but they are miraculously given the ability to speak in all of these other languages that were spoken throughout the the Mediterranean world. And the reason for that is because outside you've got all these other Jewish people who lived all over the world and they'd come to Jerusalem for the festival of Pentecost. And as they're listening, they hear. They hear the sound of worship. And they hear the sound of prayer. And they hear the sound of the gospel. And they hear it in their own language. And they say, how is it that we who speak all these different languages and tongues can hear the wonders of God being proclaimed in our own language. And it's because God had gifted these believers with this this ability to speak in other languages, not in order to confuse them, not in order to, to, to judge them, but in order to unify them and bless them so that the gospel could be heard and so that people could respond. Because they could hear the good news and they could respond to it. So rather than God now using language to confuse everybody, He is using this miracle of languages to unify people. Unify people with each other. Unify people with Himself. And rather than this Pentecost being a situation where everyone's just trying to make a name for themselves, Peter stands up and he preaches a sermon. And in that sermon, he says, Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And Peter makes the name of Jesus the central issue in this situation. Not making a name for ourselves, but now it's the name of Jesus that really matters. And the whole purpose of this miracle that God performed at Pentecost is not so that people would be scattered over the face of the earth, but so that people would be gathered, so that the nations would be gathered in, so to speak, so that God would gather in people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation to himself, to be this community that have a unique and privileged relationship with God because they belong to Jesus Christ. So can you see what's happening as you place these two stories side by side? Can you see how the day of Pentecost is the undoing of everything that the Tower of Babel represented? That instead of being judgment, it is now blessing. Instead of being confusion, it's now unifying people. Instead of making a name for ourselves, it's lifting up high the name of Jesus. And instead of people being scattered, it is now people being gathered, gathered into God, gathered into his community. This represents the undoing of everything that Babel stood for, and that's come about because of Jesus, because of Jesus being in the very center of the story. He's taken all of that judgment upon himself. He's taken on himself all of our pride, all of the ways that we've tried to make a name for ourselves, all of our sin, and he has given us the blessing of God. He's forgiven us for that sin, and he's given us God's blessing so that now we can be unified to God and we can be unified to one another.
That's the miracle of Pentecost. It's the miracle of the gospel. So now we live in the situation where we're kind of between the two stories. In one sense, we live in this day of Pentecost kind of world where Jesus has come and God's blessing is available and anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord can be saved. On the other hand, we still live in a Tower of Babel world where everyone's trying to make a name for themselves. And that's still going on. That hasn't stopped just because Jesus has come. That's still the underlying motive of a lot of human behavior, trying to make a name for ourselves. And so what that means is we are all faced with a decision, a fundamental decision of how we're going to live, how we're going to approach life. Are we going to be with the Babel crowd and live in such a way that we just try to make a name for ourselves? Or are we going to live like the day of Pentecost and call on God's name and seek to live for the glory of his name and not our own name? That's a decision at at some point, sooner or later, every human person is faced with. You're going to live to make your name great. You're going to live to make God's name great. The beauty of it today, I think, is as we see, as we witness Riley getting baptized, witness Hannah getting baptized, we're seeing these stories of two people that have made this decision. And you're going to hear those stories. We're going to see this. And here's two young women who are saying exactly this. You know, and they're immersed in a culture that is telling them what's important is to make a name for yourself. What's important is you make a name for yourself. You put yourself first. Everything should revolve around you. And we're seeing today two young women are going to stand up here and they've put that aside. And they've said, we're not going to be squeezed into that mold. We're not going to be conformed to that. We're going to choose another path. And we're going to choose to live for God's name. We're going to choose to live for God's glory. That is a big call. I hope we all appreciate just what a big call that is, especially for young people in this culture with incredible influence because this is swimming upstream from the whole cultural waters that we're living in, which pushes us to make a name for ourselves. But they're saying, I want to make God's name great. That's what you're going to hear in in the stories. That's what we're going to see in their baptisms. And it's a choice that we all face, right? I mean, you may be here and you you may recognize, you know, maybe, maybe you haven't thought about it in this way or with these words, but you really have been living up to this point just to make a name for yourself. And that's, that's been your life, just a self-serving, self-orientated kind of existence. And maybe today God is gently prompting you and saying there's, there's such a better way to live. I want you to get off the throne of your own life and hand that throne to me. I want to be on the throne. I want to be in the center of your life. I want to be the defining reality of your life. I want you to lay all of these other things down. I want you to live for my name rather than your own name. And you know, you may be a Christian here and still be faced and convicted by this question because you may realize, and this takes a little bit of soul searching, but you may realize that even as a Christian, you've still basically been living for your own name. And, and, and God is there and you pray, you come to church, you do all these things. But really, when it comes down to it, God is there to serve you, not you, him. God is there to help you achieve your dreams. And help you achieve your goals in life, which still comes down to a humanistic, self-centered way of living. And perhaps God is saying to you today, I want you to totally change the way you see this. I want you to bring your whole life to me and lay it down. I don't want you to use me just to bless your pre-existing plans. I want you to bring those plans and I want you to lay them down and give it all to me. I want you to lay down your dreams, your plans, your goals, your ambitions, and I want you to open your life fully to me to my plans for you, to the future I have for you, to my agenda 
for your life and my purposes in this world. Ultimately, it's not even about you. It's about you becoming part of God's story. That's a big call. But maybe even as a Christian, that's the decision God is calling you to make today. That you've still been the kind of Christian who is making a name for yourself rather than making a name for God. So I want to encourage us this morning just to think about these two stories and think about where you sit and think about where you want to be. Whether you're part of that Tower of Babel story, still living to make a name for yourself, or whether you are willing to step into that Pentecost story, call on God's name and say, from this day forward, no matter what's happened up to this point, I want to live the rest of my life to live for the glory of God's name, to lift his name high and make my life about making his name great, not making my own name great. Let's take a couple of minutes just to search our own hearts. Let God search our hearts as we prepare ourselves to take the Lord's Supper on this. Because it's difficult sometimes to see our own motives, the inclinations of our heart. They can be hidden from us. But let's just ask God to really shine the spotlight of his spirit into our lives and surface anything that needs to be revealed as we uh, enter into this time. Father God, we pray that you would come now and just bring this story alive to us in Scripture. That you would come now by your Holy Spirit and search our hearts. And God, we know how good we are at deceiving ourselves. We know that we can think that we're living for your name and your glory just because we may say the right words or do the right things. But God, we just ask this morning that you would search deep in our hearts, deep in our souls, and ask us that penetrating question of what are you truly living for? And God, if you're revealing things to us now and we realize that really we are pretty misguided, We've been living for the wrong things, been living for ourselves. I want to pray, Father, that that wouldn't be something that just creates more guilt for people. I pray it wouldn't be something that creates more shame or anxiety for anybody. But I pray, Lord God, it would just lead them to run to you. It would just lead us just in the quietness of our own hearts now to run to you and embrace you, to fall before you as our Lord and say, God, we confess. We confess that we are like those people just kind of building a tower, building a great big edifice to our own glory sometimes. And we just want to lay that down, Father. Just want to say, God, that we are yours. And though we are so broken and so fallen, we want to ask that you would come and fill us afresh with your Holy Spirit, that we might live for the glory of your name, live to lift up your name, live to make your name great, make your name known all the days of our lives. Father, would you help us? Would you strengthen us? Would you give us the power to be the people that you're calling us to be? We thank you that it is all for your glory, not ours. It's for your name, not ours. It's for your greatness, not ours. Lord, we pray that we, we would become less so that you would become more, that we would decrease so that you, Jesus, might increase. That's what we long for. Pray that you bring that about in our lives today. In all the days of our life, pray this in Jesus' name. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.